if you were to ask, what is your disability? Now you have waded into an area that will perhaps get you in trouble. Welcome to another episode of Invest in the West, where we tackle investing strategies and real estate related topics in the Western part of the United States. One of the major worries landlords are facing is fair housing risk. This is especially true when it comes to assistance animals. Today, we're going to talk to John Bradford, an expert and pioneer in this field. He will talk to you about the differences between service and companion animals, how to screen them, and the latest technology in the field. All right, John, uh, we'd like to welcome you to the show here. Um, obviously, we're going to be talking a little bit about companion animals and service animals and um, essentially the different screening practices and just some of the things that are going on in the industry. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and kind of relation to the topic, what you do now, um, kind of where you got your expertise? Yeah, thank you for having me on your show. So I come from the single family residential property management industry, uh, started a firm back in 2007, uh, managing single family assets for investors, and then did a lot of management for the real estate institutional trusts uh, who were amassing large quantities of single family assets in a lot of the major cities throughout the country. And that experience you know, really helped me understand the intricacies of dealing with people who have pets and people who were saying that they had an assistance animal. Uh, we've experienced dog bites. We've experienced people saying they don't have pets. And then, of course, they do have pets because, you know, the girlfriend's visiting every weekend and bringing her pet. <laughs> um, and then coupled with that, I have a, a background. I served seven years in elected service. I did three years at the town council level. And then I went on to serve in the North Carolina House of Representatives. And I was the go-to person in the House of Representatives here in North Carolina. So I championed a lot of the tenant landlord related legislation and a lot of my colleagues were sending people my way as it related to service animals and assistance animals. And even though those are more federal statutes in nature, states continue to, to wrestle with their own sets of issues um, and things would come my way. And I just thought, well, perhaps I could use my two skill sets from property management and my legislative background and try to go build a mousetrap that really did not exist. Uh, so it wasn't even a better mousetrap. It was a mousetrap that never existed and to go build something. And so I had this idea to create a product that would help the entire rental housing industry when it comes to dealing with, you know, just people and pets and pet policies and also, you know, assistance animals. And that's really how pet screening was born uh, about two and a half years ago. I know it's definitely been a really popular tool. It's been game changing and uh, certainly tackled an area of you know, concern for a lot of um, landlords, you know, big and small. So, um, you know, kudos on that. Thank you. So one of the things that a lot of times people get confused about is they hear the term service animal, they hear the term companion animal, assistance animal. Um, they're actually not the same. There is a distinction between the service and companion animal. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the difference between those two? It happens every day. People conflate the concept of a service animal with assistance animal, and they're really conflating the ADA with the Fair Housing Act. And so the difference is, you know, ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, allows service animals 
in areas of public accommodation. So areas of public accommodation would be like theaters and restaurants, you know, anything that's open to the public. And the ADA limits service animals specifically to only be dogs and, believe it or not, miniature horses. And when I say miniature horse, they probably stand about 30, 32, 35 inches tall. So they're, they're really small <laughs> horses. And, um, and those are the only two types of animals that are formally recognized under the ADA uh, at this time as being a service animal. And those animals must be trained to perform a specific task because the individual who has the service animal is supposed to have a disability and the animal is supposed to perform some sort of task to ameliorate the disability. And no proof can be asked, if you will, by someone who works in an area of public accommodation. You can ask questions, but you can't ask the individual to like generate proof that their animal is trained. You can ask questions about is this animal trained to perform a task, but no proof can be asked, which actually creates problems on the other side, which is the Fair Housing Act. Um, and then also, it's important to know, there's no national registration of any kind recognized by the ADA when it comes to service animals. So anytime someone says their service animal is registered, that just means they have registered it voluntarily. They might have paid to register it, but the, the entity they've registered it with is a for-profit entity that has created just a registration system, but it's not anything that's formally recognized by any government agency whatsoever. So now let's switch over to the world of private housing. Private housing being, you know, multifamily housing, apartment communities, single family assets that, you know, that uh, companies like yours, Nick, manages, um, you know, vacation rentals that people, you know, rent to vacation goers throughout the, you know, the, the country. That is something that falls under the Fair Housing Act. And it's called seeking a reasonable accommodation request. And so what that means is the requester, which is the individual that has the animal or someone living with them that has the animal, so perhaps a minor, for example, they are seeking an accommodation request. So they're basically seeking that the housing provider or the landlord give them an accommodation request to allow their animal to live with them. And under the Fair Housing Act, there's a couple differences. Uh, the, the biggest difference is there's no exhaustive list of types of animals that are prohibited or even a list of animals that are allowed. You know, So unlike the ADA, which limits service animals to dogs and miniature horses, under the Fair Housing Act, any animal could be requested. Now, that doesn't mean that any animal could be approved, uh, but it doesn't limit it. Uh, another differentiation is animals do not have to be trained under the Fair Housing Act because some animals bring emotional support to someone and an animal bringing comfort or emotional support, that doesn't necessarily mean the animal's trained, just that that animal brings a comfort to them. So there's no training requirement whatsoever under the Fair Housing Act, unlike over under the ADA when it comes to areas of public accommodation, because remember, those animals are doing a task. There is still no registration whatsoever, even for assistance animals. So anytime someone says they've registered their emotional support animal, for example, there is no nationally recognized uh, registration 
agency of any any kind or database of any kind that's recognized by HUD or Fair Housing. So again, those are usually for-profit entities that are selling you know, volunt- voluntary type registrations that people are purchasing, and and perhaps they're buying them to make their lives a little easier. But from a proof standpoint, those really are insufficient. The biggest difference, and the last thing, is under the Fair Housing Act, you can, a, requ- a housing provider is allowed to ask for some documentation or proof. And what the proof that you're seeking is really just to affirm that the requester or the person that's living with them has a disability and has a disability-related need for the animal. So you, you absolutely can ask for documentation to affirm those two things. HUD makes it very clear that an individual seeking an accommodation request must have a disability and a disability-related need for the animal. So if someone just has a disability and there's no disability-related need for an animal, then they wouldn't qualify under the, under the, the act you know, for, or under the accommodation request provisions. So those are the two differences really, or the differences, there's multiple differences between ADA and service animals and Fair Housing Act and assistance animals. A service animal can be a type of assistance animal, but you, you can ask for proof unlike the restaurateur who cannot ask for proof. So that starts to create some of the complexities and confusion around this space. Thanks a lot, John. I really appreciate that clarification. Obviously, that's something that um, you know really creates a lot of confusion for landlords, uh, especially those that are self-managing, uh, because the, the intent for both service animals and companion animals has always been great, right? Because you have a a certain number of the population where it's a dire need and it's a legitimate need and something that uh, we as landlords should accommodate and we as humans in in our communities should accommodate. But really a a lot of landlords see that as being an opportunity for those who don't need it to abuse it, whether it be because the incoming tenant has a specific preference on a breed or they want a property that doesn't typically allow Uh, a pet. So can you maybe identify the things that you are prohibited from doing as a landlord when you have a tenant that has a companion or service animal or or claims to have one? Absolutely. So the the very first thing I always like to remind people is there's a difference between an obvious disability and a non-obvious or invisible disability. Accommodation requests apply to individuals that have invisible or non-obvious disabilities. So let me give you an example. If someone were to walk into your leasing office and they had uh, a, a cane in their hand, a dog at their side, and they had you know gla- dark glasses on. Then it would be very obvious that this person has a vision impairment, you know, perhaps fully blind, and that dog is a is a seeing eye dog or a, or or some sort of visual companion for them. That's an obvious disability and an obvious disability related need, because the dog is there to help this person navigate because they they have poor vision. In that case, there's no further action that needs to be completed when it comes to seeking any type of information to support their need for the animal because it's obvious. A fair number of the situations that landlords and property managers run into are people who have invisible or non-obvious disabilities. Take an emotional disability. That's a non-obvious thing. You wouldn't know someone's emotional Uh, emotions or that they have a disability. So the first thing is just kind of, if you meet the particular prospect, you know, make sure it's not obvious. 
And if it is not obvious, and now you start going down the pathway of, of, of um, evaluating it, it's incumbent upon the requester to make it known that they are seeking an accommodation request. I see a lot of landlords that, you know, say, hey, we have a no pet policy, but if you're making an accommodation request, you know, do this, this, and this. Really, you know, you can just say we have a no pet policy and leave it there. You don't have to go on and elaborate that, you know, if you have an assistance animal, because people who have assistance animals that are legitimate, they know that they have to make a request and it's incumbent upon them to make the request. So once a request has been initiated, if you will, then now the landlord has to, you know, pursue that. And we're, you know, we're seeing all kinds of ways that that's done. But there are some gotchas here. Uh, You know, there's two, I always like to reference, there's a 2013 HUD memo. Um, If you just Google 2013 HUD FHEO for for fair housing, uh, equal opportunity, memo for assistance animals, it's easy to find. And that's the, really the last formal correspondence that HUD issued on this particular matter. And it's a great document that I think landlords should have ready to give to uh, requesters or even to their staff. It's a great pivot document to have there. But in that document, it clearly outlines uh, what two questions that you can ask these individuals who are seeking accommodation request. And, you know, while I can't cite them word for word without pulling it up, it, it essentially the first question is, do you or the person living with, with you have a disability? And that's a yes or no answer. If you were to ask, what is your disability? Now you have waded into an area um, that will perhaps get you in trouble uh, because you cannot ask someone specifically about their disability. So always think in context of yes or no questions. So do you have a disability? Yes or no? And if they say yes, then the next question is, do you have a disability-related need for the animal? Because remember, it's a two-question test. There are a lot of a lot of Americans out there that have disabilities that do not have a disability-related need for an animal. So they don't have an animal. So the next question is, do you or the person living with you have a disability-related need for the animal? And in kind of Lynn Lehman's term, that means the animal must somehow help ameliorate the disability. And ameliorate, I know it's sort of a fancy word, but ameliorate just means address, somehow help the disability. Now, that's not a trained task, but it just has to help the disability. And once you ask those two questions, both of the answers must be affirmative. In other words, they have to be yes to both of those. Um, if the answer is no to either one of those questions, then the person can be denied a, a reasonable accommodation request. But if the answers are both yes, now the landlord or the property manager can seek documentation from the requester that would affirm that they have a disability and a disability-related need. You're not seeking documentation that you know outlines anything about their disability, but you are seeking documentation that affirms they do have a disability and a need. And those forms of documents come in lots of different um, shapes and sizes. You know, we've seen prescriptions, we've seen letters on letterhead, we've seen things scribbled on sticky notes. I mean, and I'm not being facetious, we see all kinds of things here at petscreening.com. But, you know, once the landlord or the property manager has that document, you know, now you need to see if the language in the document 
if it also affirms the two-question test because the language in the document matters. The the language can't just say, you know, uh, Susan says she needs her animal and I agree with her. You know, that would not nearly meet the two-question test. So, you know, there is a little bit of work you got to do to just kind of read into the to, to the to the document to see if it does that. And then the landlord can, or the property manager can also reach out to that, uh, we call it a third-party verifier, uh, a third-party provider. Um, and those, you know, it could be a doctor, but it most certainly doesn't have to be a doctor. That's one kind of gotcha that we see people require things from medical doctors. And that's a that's, that's, that's heading for trouble. It just needs to be from a, 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 what HUD cites as sort of a healthcare professional. So it could be therapists or counselors, um, you know, nurse practitioners, could be a medical doctor. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of disciplines out there that are in the health you know, profession, but they're not necessarily medical doctors. Um, and, and, and you can reach out to those individuals and say, hey, did you uh, write this letter? Is this authentic? Is this your signature? Um, but what you're never doing is saying, hey, tell me about their disability. Why do they, why, you know, you know okay, what kind of disability do they have? And tell me more about why this animal is going to ameliorate their disability. You know, those are, you know, you're starting to get really specific there. Um, and, and I think wading into, into deep waters with sharks. So, um, so those are some of the things you can do. I, I don't want to you know, go on and on, but I, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, I mean, it definitely did, John. Um, it's obviously a big area of fear and concern for a lot of small landlords, and you offered a lot of kind of insight to some of the steps that people have to take. But, you know, from your perspective, you know, being an expert in this you know field and obviously having pioneered some tools, um, you know, say it's just a regular small mom and pop landlord and they're informed that an applicant has you know, a companion or an assistance animal or a service animal, you know, what steps can they really take to protect their property, the community, the tenants? I mean, obviously you've gone through this test here with a a couple of the questions, but, you know, a lot of times people don't know how to handle that feedback or if they're getting legitimate feedback from a qualified provider. Um, They're worried about, hey, you know, what if my insurance doesn't cover you know, this particular breed, stuff like that. So are there some things that maybe you would suggest that they could do to protect themselves um, from some of the liability that comes along with having another, you know, animal on the property, or in this case, you know, a companion animal that may be untrained? I I get asked that question a lot, and and I I don't want to be self-serving on your podcast. So one thing you can do clearly is um, go hire an attorney who has experience with property management and fair housing and have the attorney help you navigate the uh, accommodation request review process, um, and you know, and, and I, I think that's a, a always a wise move. The challenge is, you know, attorneys they're, they 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 want to make a living too, and so they're going to charge you for that. Um, you know, you could try to have someone on staff, a compliance person that's very well versed in this space, um, and you know, someone that you trust <laughs> that knows what they're doing because they're doing it on your behalf. Um, smaller firms are probably not going to have that resource and they probably are not going to have full-time in-house counsel either. So either way, they're going to, you know, probably have to find someone else to do it. And then, you know, I mean, again, and I'm, I'm not a, I'm not trying to sell anything pet screening, this product that I've come up with, there is no doubt that we're a great resource uh, for landlords and property managers of any size of all size. And, you know, we, you know, we really do alleviate, you know, these issues 
for property managers of all size. So we're an option as well for consideration if someone's looking for help as it relates to um, reviewing accommodation requests. Yeah, no, and that's great. And we definitely want to hear a little bit more about um, you know the program you've developed and the tool that's been kind of deployed. And I know a lot of professional management companies are using it. So I do want to get into that here shortly. We're going to go ahead and take a quick break. So we're going to come back and discuss a little bit more about that program and some of the facets of it and uh, pros and cons and so forth. So uh, we're going to go ahead and run to the break and we'll be back soon. Sleep Sound Property Management is a full-service, professional management company serving the Portland metro and Vancouver area. We give our clients back their most valuable asset, time. By delegating your property management, you'll be able to focus on what you do best while minimizing your liability and maximizing your return. Learn how we can help at sleepsoundpm.com. So, John, um, you know, you're the founder of PetScreening.com, and um, obviously this is a program that's been really successful. Could you tell us a bit about your process and the value add to landlords in protecting their properties through something like PetScreening.com? We're actually a uh, nationwide service. We actually are in all 50 states, and we even have clients in Canada. So I guess technically we're a North American company. Um, we service all segments of the rental housing industry, so single family, multifamily, uh, vacation and short-term, student housing, uh, even senior and corporate housing. And PetScreening.com, we are a no-charge service, so we are free for housing providers, so property managers and landlords. And what we do is we provide a very easy and standardized way to help hold all of your you know, new applicants, any renewing tenants or renewing residents accountable to your pet and animal policies. And it's interesting because that also includes uh, policies related to people that say they have no pets. And and we can talk about that in a few minutes, but just because someone says they have no pet doesn't really mean they don't have a pet. So even people without pets need to go through our process. And we... Uh, we'll help you hold these folks accountable. Um, we screen household pets, so ordinary dogs, cats, and you know we even do caged animals. We, we see occasional birds and rabbits, uh, but mostly dogs and cats. But we screen pets and the pet owner because at PetScreening.com, we don't necessarily believe that every pit bull, for example, is bad or dangerous. Uh, we think it has a lot to do with the pet owner and the pet owner's care of their pet. So we ask a lot of data point questions to the pet owner about their care of their pet, their understanding of pet policies, past behaviors of the pet. And these are not really alarming questions, but they tell a much bigger story. And so we take that data, combine it with the data that we've actually collected on the pet from photos, vaccinations, uh, microchip, breed, sex, weight, you know, spayed, neutered, if it's a cat, claws, no claws, cat claws, uh, how old is it? Uh, how long have you owned it? And we collect all this data and then we analyze it in a proprietary algorithm that we've created. And what we do is we issue a FIDO score. And the FIDO score is a score that goes to the property manager to help them better understand the risk, the housing-related risk that they're taking for that pet and pet owner together. And in, in, and in turn, the FIDO score can be used not only to make better acceptance decisions, but can also be used to help set pet pricing policies because you might have a really good pet owner 
with a with a good pet that you charge less than someone with a higher risk. And then lastly, assistance animals. We have an in-house legal review team that uh, reviews every single accommodation request, uh, and we and we do that for housing providers all day long. And we are making sure that the accommodation request meets the Fair Housing Act guidelines. You know, we're reviewing it. And we're also reaching out to the third-party verifiers to make sure that those documents are authentic. So it sounds like you're doing uh, you're doing a lot. I just want to jump in real quick. You had mentioned uh, FIDO score. I know that people may have heard of the term FICO score before, but what is a FIDO score? Can you tell us a little bit about that, just so people kind of have context of uh, what it is that you guys are doing? So a FIDO score is only issued to pets and pet owners. So, uh, and it's a, it's a combined score. So if someone, Nick, was at your company applying for a property and they had a pet, then the pet owner would obviously go through our product and we would issue a FIDO score to you, the property manager. And that FIDO score represents the, the housing related risk about the pet and the pet owner together. So we're collecting lots and lots of data uh, we're getting photos, we're getting uh, the breed type, we're getting behavioral history, we're getting, has it ever been quarantined? Uh, we're asking the owner a lot of questions about leashing and, and waste pickup. You know, you know, poop pickup is extremely important to apartment communities because they have common areas. So, you know, someone needs to pick up waste immediately, for example, if it's uh, uh, in a common area. So we collect all this data, we analyze it, uh, with our proprietary algorithm, and then we issue a risk score. We do not accept or decline pets. That's not what we do. We don't do that for property managers. It's up to you to accept their decline, but our FIDO score is a risk indicator that you can use. And we follow a very easy scale. We Very similar how Google does one to five stars for reputation feedback. We do one to five paws. So we use paws instead of stars. So a five-paw dog or cat would be our best score and our lowest risk, and a one paw would be our lowest score and our low and our our lowest score and our highest risk. And then we also have a zero paw score that can be customized by the property manager. So if a property manager, for example, does not allow any dogs that are of the German Shepherd variety, I'm just completely making this up. But if you don't allow German Shepherds, then you could go into the customization of our product and say, okay, all German Shepherds are going to be a zero paw. So when a German Shepherd comes through, when you get the FIDO score, it's going to be a zero paw. So you would know and your team would know very instantly, this is one that we're not going to accept. But if that German Shepherd owner took their pet profile to a different landlord that allowed German Shepherds, and if that other landlord used pet screening and they shared it with them, then the score would not be a zero at the other property manager. It'd be a different score. And then that property manager could move ahead if they wanted to. I think this is great. I mean, obviously, this is more comprehensive than probably most landlords have ever thought about. Um, it helps them, you know, feel more comfortable with the process. Oh, for sure. It is. So, I mean, it, from it sounds like if, if I'm a landlord... Um, this really helps kind of shift some of the liability that I take. Cause I think that's the biggest thing is that people hear assistance, companion animal, you know, service animal, and they get really frightened and they, they're afraid to say no. And it sounds like your tool here is going to kind of empower them to make better decisions, um, that maybe is going to reduce the liability. Is that, you know, kind of really what the purpose of the program is? And well, 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 it is. So keep in mind the FIDO score is only for a pet. So if someone comes to our product and they say they're seeking an accommodation request, well, that's an animal, not a pet. So we still help them. We still help you, the property manager, 
The difference is now we collect information related to their accommodation request, including asking the two questions. So this now removes any chance that anyone on your team would ask the wrong question. Remember the, do you have a disability versus what is your disability? That completely gets removed because we're going to do that for you. And we ask those questions word for word out of the HUD memo. So there is no confusion whatsoever about what we're asking. And then we collect the documentation from the third party verifier that the requester uploads uh, into our product. And then all of that gets routed to our legal review team. And our legal review team interacts with that requester. uh, So if there's any questions or any clarity that's needed, And then we reach out to the third-party verifiers to make sure those documents are authentic. And what happens is, you know, we find real fraud. I mean, real blatant fraud where a a doctor, for example, says, that is not my signature. That is pure forgery. And that's a quote. Like, we've had that happen. Uh, We just just had a fraudulent instance uh, two weeks ago with the Veterans Administration. And the VA has now opened a a file because they want to pursue it because the requester altered a VA document and forged it. And so, you know, we find real fraud. Now, I don't want to suggest everyone that's going through our process commits fraud. The point is, though, we're helping catch the people that are, you know, not following the guidelines. And that's all we do. We're not a punitive process. In fact, legitimate animal owners, right, people who have legitimate assistance animals because they have a legitimate disability, they actually appreciate what we're doing because they sail right through because they know what they need. They, they have what they need. But they appreciate the fact that we're at least bringing a consistent way of reviewing this and people who have gone online and bought a certificate or a badge and are just trying to push that through there. That's insufficient documentation and they and they might not, you know, get recommended. So many people convert on their own. They'll convert it from an animal and they'll just convert it to a pet and then they pay the application fee because that's the only way pet screening makes money is we charge a small application fee to pet owners. It's free if it's an accommodation request. We don't charge anything for that. But if they decide to switch it to a pet, then they would just pay the normal pet application fee. And then we would do our analysis. We'd issue the FIDO score just like we do all other pets. And congratulations, the property manager can now move ahead as a pet, which means you can collect pet fees, pet deposits, pet um, rents, whatever it is you do at your, at your particular firm or in your community. Well, that's great. I mean, so is this, I mean, one of the things you mentioned, you've worked with a lot of property management companies. Obviously, that's kind of where some of your background is. I mean, is this tool available to small landlords or do you have to be a property management company? No. I mean, we have, I mean, we have landlords that have, you know, four properties. The only thing I, I think it's important to note is, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're a company that needs to make revenue. So we're, you know, we're a for-profit company, so we have to generate revenue. So if somebody wants to use us just to do their assistance animal requests. We don't charge for that. We have not monetized that. So we're not going to be able to help them. And we get asked that occasionally, um, especially like student housing. They try to have a lot of student housing tries to have a no pet policy whatsoever, but they're getting a lot of accommodation requests. They want to send them to us, but we don't have the ability to make any money off of that unless we were to charge, you know, the actual property manager. And in some cases, the property managers are willing to pay. But we've just decided not to monetize that. So the only way we make revenue is we have to have your pet business. So you have to be a pet friendly landlord and you have to be you have to accept pets because we're going to charge pet owners a small fee to go through our process. And that's where we make our revenue. So it doesn't matter the size of the property manager or landlord. 
but they have to be willing to send us pet business. Because if all they're sending us is assistance animals, then, you know, we're going to, you know, suspend their service because we, we have no, we have no ability to make any revenue and we'd just be giving away free legal services. And that wouldn't be a very smart business model. You know, that totally makes sense. And I think sometimes people lose uh, sight of that uh, when you're a landlord or especially a, a small landlord. And, um, you know, each business has a specific business model. So it really gives us some insight there. You know, one of the situations that landlords may run into is that the pet screening is approved and, uh, you know, based on the companion or service animal status. But then the animal is a restricted breed for the landlord's insurance policy. And that's been addressed in the past. I'm sure you're uh, well aware of it. Can you give some insight on what you believe the landlord needs to do about that at, at that point? Because, you know, obviously we have these layers of, um, you know, disability and the need specific to uh, having to move forward. And then you get into a scenario where the landlord has a policy with their own restrictions uh, with someone perhaps they've, they've had a longstanding relationship with for their insurance agent or the company they're working with. Tell us a little bit about um, what you've seen and how that's impacted some of the landlords or tenants that you've been working with. First of all, anyone that is is using their insurance company and their pet exclusions as a reason to deny accommodation request is on a very, very slippery slope. And let me explain why. In 2006, HUD issued a memo. It's a one-page memo. And we have that memo, by the way, uh, over at petscreening.com. You can go to our resources and find the memo. And it's a, it's a very easy one-page uh, memo. And what the department of, of, excuse me, what HUD says is that if a landlord or property manager is saying that the insurance company is not going to cover a particular breed when it's an assistance animal, then you need to make sure that, you know, that it, that it's clear that the insurance company is saying that we won't cover an animal. Those exclusions are pet related exclusions. And keep in mind, we're not talking about pets. We're talking about animals. Animals in this instance, are assistive devices to someone with a disability. So an insurance policy will have breed exclusions for pets, but they do not usually apply to animals. And the memo says, if your insurance company is willing to go on the record and say, yes, these breed exclusions are also for animals, assistance animals, one, if you're the property manager, make sure you get that in writing because you're going to probably want to keep that. I think you'll be hard-pressed to get it in writing unless it's someone on the front line that's brand new and is maybe just doesn't know. So you might want to make sure you're really talking to an experienced person or experienced broker at the insurance agency and not just you know someone who's new or the administrator because you want to make sure that someone's giving you the right answer. And if they are truly saying that their breed exclusions not only apply to pets, but also apply to animals, then this memo goes on to say that it is the responsibility of the landlord and the property owner to look at other options in the marketplace for insurance. And there are lots of insurance companies that do not even have any pet exclusions. So you would almost have to find a provider in your area. And, and by the way, that expands to the whole state because licensure for insurance companies are usually within a state. So you could find a provider on the far east side of your state and you could be on the far west side, but that insurance could still cover you. But it's it's up to you and the, the property manager and it's up to the property owner to really try to exhaust other options that could provide coverage. And if you still 
could not find anyone, which again, I think you'd be very hard pressed to find. In fact, I, I think you are not looking hard enough. Um, then, uh, then I, then you could, I guess, use that as a reason as a hard financial hardship to deny the request, but you better have everything well documented. And the memo then goes on to say that they, that they being HUD reserves their rights with the department of justice to engage the DOJ to pursue the insurance provider for discrimination against someone's civil rights because they have a disability. So what? So I tell people all the time, before you play that card, you better really understand it. And I just think it's best to stay away from it. And at PetScreening.com, if you have a problem, call us. We can help. We can give you some insurance providers that are, in fact, pet friendly. And if they're pet friendly, then they'll be animal friendly as well. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. You know, I've heard a little bit uh, recently about the Department of Justice. And I, for some reason, I feel like I don't really want to deal with them. So I, I really appreciate the insight there. Yeah. Well, and that memo is available. So, you know, don't take my word for it. Read the memo and it'll it'll really shed some light on it. And um, I would be using that as the very, very, very last reason to deny our accommodation request. And even then, I still wouldn't probably play the card. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, when I met you about four or five years ago, John, you you were really talking and something that's kind of stuck in my mind is how there isn't really a central database. Like when you do a, a background screening on a tenant, you can go back through prior landlords, you can go back, uh, you can take a look at their um, credit report and their criminal history. But for pets, it's a little bit more challenging to track those things down. You know, oftentimes a, a vet isn't going to voluntarily send you a, a memo saying, oh yeah, this been this dog has been in six fights, <laughs> you know, and, and been bitten by uh, other dogs while scuffling with them, right? So now that you've been exposed to a higher volume of requests concerning pets, uh, as well as service and companion animals than probably any other landlord, uh, since this is your specialty, how big is your current sample size? Because that's one of the things that we look at from a statistical perspective in managing properties or owning properties as a landlord information is king. It is. And now that you have larger sample sizes, what what is your, would you say, approximate sample size? And can you give us some numbers or some general ideas on how much fraud you've seen actually come through and any other stats that you think might be surprising to us or yeah. anything you were surprised yeah, by? Yeah, absolutely. So in the last 12 months, we have screened over 32,000 household pets and almost 4,000 accommodation requests. Uh, which is a lot of accommodation requests. <laughs> uh, that's a lot. And uh, and this year in 2019, you know, we're probably on track to probably screen 70,000 pets um, and probably seven 7,000 ish assistance animals. Um, so our, you know, so our data is growing. I mean, we have uh, we're approaching 700,000 rental units that have subscribed to our service. Wow. Uh, so we're not a million yet, but you know, and that, that's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of rental houses and we're just kind of getting cranked up here. Um, from just some neat statistics that we've been seeing, um, let's talk about the database. So we have the first collaborative database that property managers can report incidents into our database because you're right, Matt, there is no centralized database for prior incidents. And incidents aren't always just bites. You know, yes, a pet bite's a great type of incident, but so is pet property damage. If you have a cat that urinates in the same corner and you had to tear up the pad, the carpet, the subfloor, that's going to be, you know, a couple thousand dollar fix from a cat. Well, that's an incident report. And that's, that's, that's noteworthy to report into our system. 
if you have, um, you know, multifamily struggles with people not picking up their waste in common areas. And so if they catch someone not picking up their dog, you know, dog poop, and they have, you know, it's a, they have a bona fide record, whether they're doing the DNA testing or they have a photo of someone that or video of someone uh, not picking it up, which sometimes happens. People are sneaky and they're videoing people because they suspect they're doing it and then they get them on the record. Well, they could report that into our tool. And that data follows the pet and pet owner in perpetuity in our tool. So the FIDO score will surface these past incidents as people start moving around from rental to rental through their life cycle of renting. So that's very, very powerful. Um, we have seen just uh, percentage-wise, you know, about 80 of the applications that we take are for pets and 14% are for accommodation requests. So 14% of the time, it's someone submitting an accommodation request. 86% of the time, it's someone with an ordinary household pet. And then of that 14% for assistance animals, and we've been measuring this now for just almost two years, um, about 40% of the time, the requester who's going through the process doesn't finish the process. And they and when I say they, do, they don't finish it, it could be a variety of reasons. One, they have insufficient documentation and our legal review team sends it back to them saying, you have insufficient documentation. We send them the, the HUD memo link and we ask them for additional information and we wait. And in many cases, those people either disappear or they'll convert it to a pet on their own. We have literally a self conversion to pet button that they can click, and then they can finish the process as a pet. Uh, The other instances are going to be cases of fraud, where we find real blatant fraud. And then the other cases are ones where we don't recommend them because of something that's very clear that they could not meet meet the the guidelines and the requirements. So 40% of the time, which really brings that 14% number down to about 9%, which means 91% of the time, they're probably household pets and 9% of the time, they're assistance animals. And that's really important because 9% is not a huge deal, really, if you think about it. But that 9% feels like a billion percent to a property manager who's scared to death that they're going to get in trouble or scared to death that they're going to ask the wrong question. So we don't, you know, we we understand that whether it's 9%, 10%, whatever, it, it feels like a lot more than that. But the problem isn't as big as one might think, but it's that important that it sure does feel huge. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's one of those situations where um, because it happens so rarely that you have a service or companion animal request, the you know it's like any other task. If you do a monotonous task every single day, you can pretty much do it with your eyes closed. But then when it uh, when something pops up, you're not familiar. There's extreme liability associated with this on two fronts with uh, both the fair housing and the ADA. Uh, front. And so, you know, not just not dealing with it on a daily basis, but also having that liability be right in your face and the consequence being so intense. And and I think that that's that's really where um, it becomes critical to have an outside service, uh, such as yours, obviously, um, really to have the data to be able to look at it. And, you know, the 40% failure rate or self-withdrawal rate, depending on uh, how you look at that, I think also speaks a little bit to the landlord's fears that this might be an abused 
opportunity or an abused situation by those who don't necessarily need this, right? Absolutely. There's no doubt about it, Matt. There there are people abusing it. They're trying to circumvent pet policies. And we and look, we inherently believe all people are good. And so we we continue to kill people with kindness. That's just our mantra over here. But if they, you know, we hear, oh, I'm a veteran and, you know, this is my registration. And when we send it back, say, well, this registration is insufficient. Um, you know, sometimes people get a little feisty and we just say, well, first of all, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. You know, but despite the fact that you're a veteran, you still have to follow the guidelines. I mean, you, uh, that you have to. So we're not here to play favorites. We're just here to keep everybody in between the lines to make sure that they meet the guidelines. And those that meet the guidelines have no problems um, getting a recommended status. Uh, and it's an iterative process. Like, you know, we're not, we're not, uh, what we call not recommend happy. You know, we don't, we don't use the word decline because it sounds so strong. We see the recommend or not recommend, but we're not trying to hit that not recommend button to prove a point. We only hit the not recommend button and we absolutely know we're not going to recommend it. The other times we'll just return it back to them because we need more information and we want to engage in that dialogue back and forth, back and forth. And we will review something 10 times if that's what it takes. We have no problems doing that. Because under the Fair Housing Act, they want you to have an iterative process, a collaborative process, and that's what we try to do. But what we're not going to do is we're not going to coach them. We're not going to counsel them. We're not going to give them legal guidance of how they can do this. They need to know what they need if they're going to seek an accommodation request. And it's not our job to explain to them how to do that. Yeah, and that makes sense. And, I, and you know, one of the things, too, is that a lot of these, I imagine, requests show up um, when somebody's looking to move into a property, right? They're in the leasing process. And, you know, if you're in the industry, you're familiar with that a lot of people who are in leasing um, are generally newer members to the property management team, right? It's more of an entry level position oftentimes. And when they get faced with something, you know, as significant as this, it can be certainly overwhelming. Um, I mean, it's, it's, really been an interesting product. And um, I have to admit, I, I was not aware that we could report behavior of animals um, that would then carry forward with that animal. That sounds like a great idea. Hopefully, uh, that's something that stays around and people don't get upset and act like, you know, feel like they're being singled out or something like that. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it's fair game. I mean, it's the, the pets are not a protected class and um, animals uh, you know, you can turn a request down if a specific animal has a propensity to damage property or to cause harm. Well, the only way to know that is if there's an incident that was reported on that particular animal. And the only way you're going to get that is either they come forth and say that this has happened on their own or another property manager puts the data in and is willing to vouch for it because those are the types of data points that become incredibly important when reviewing an accommodation request. Uh, so, those databases are that database is there for the industry, and obviously, being a new product, it's our job to still try to coach people to make sure they know it's there. Um, and I know people are busy, but uh, our product has a lot of neat things that I think people aren't fully taking advantage of. But we hope to, you know, continue to educate them how they can use it uh, to, to to the full extent. And the database, incident reporting database, is one of those items. Well, it, it's certainly going to be providing value. You know, John, I, I really appreciate you talking to us today about PetScreening.com. We've got, in closing here, we like to get to know you a little bit better and just let the audience hear a yeah. little bit about you. So we've got just a few parting questions here on a personal level. Uh, you know, the first one, is there an aha moment maybe that you've had in the past year that's changed your approach to some part of your career, your investment strategies, or even your personal life? <laughs> well, so I... Um I ran for re-election in November and I lost. So that was a big aha moment. And, uh, you know, and I learned a lot about myself. I'm extremely competitive and, 
Um, I lost for circumstances that I, I could not control. It was a much bigger machine than me, and it all just had to do with the amount of money that was spent against me. But it really made me take a step back and say, okay, well, you know, I think I always believe all things happen for a reason. And, you know, I, I've learned a lot about myself. I have four kids and I think they've watched, well, how, did, you know, how does dad respond to this? Because I'm very, you know, I mean, I'm pretty well known in my community. And I think people were going to see, well, you know, how's he going to handle it? And I've just handled it with a smile. You know, you, you, you win with humility, you lose with grace. I believe in that. And, um, and now that a couple months have passed and sort of the bruises have, have worn uh, away, I'm sitting here going, well, I, th- I think at least for the next couple of years while I'm taking a, a mandatory timeout, because I don't feel like my political career is over. I, I enjoy serving and I, I feel like I'm, you know, the right type of person uh, to be in office because I'm a business owner and I, I want to fight for business owners. Uh, but it really made me uh, say, okay, well, let's go take this time wisely. And now I'm able to dive into pet screening. And um, and it's been a real aha moment. And now I'm at peace with it because my time has filled up so quickly with a gro- growth at pet screening that I'm not so sure how I could have even have done this while had I been reelected. So I think I think it did happen for a reason. Uh, but like I said, I, I plan on uh, you know pursuing politics in the future. It's just right now I'm going to continue to focus on family and uh, my business. Great. Well, I mean, you've always been a classy guy as far as I've known you. So, um, you know, I, <laughs> well, thank <laughs> doesn't, you, doesn't surprise me. <laughs> um, you know, another question we have is, uh, you know, tell us about, you know, an important ritual that you have uh, and do every day. Oh, boy, I'm, I must be really boring. I, um, you know, I mean, I try to kiss my kids every night before I go to bed, um, you know, and uh, I, you know, I try to do that and try to never go to go to sleep mad at my wife. <laughs> Those are things that I try to do every day. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Um, and how do you measure success? Well, you know, success comes in all kinds of forms. You know, for me personally, I just want to leave an impact, um, hopefully a positive impact, not a negative one. Um, uh, and, you know, I know I mean, money and in- income is always a, a guide to say how, quote, successful someone is. But, you know, I've I've done a lot of work with the IDD community and, you know, specifically Down syndrome. And, you know, for me, uh, helping a group of individuals that I think are very capable and competent of, of, of having meaningful, productive lives in our society, even though they have some sort of um, disability, is important to me. And if I can, you know, help a particular group such as, and again, Down syndrome is what speaks to me and try to help that particular segment, then that to me means I'm being successful because I'm helping do something and I'm using my sphere of influence to change things for the better. And, you know, and I think that legacy will far outlive, you know, how much money I made or did not make or what election I did or did not win. So, um, you know, I think success can be defined on, you know, how you make an impact. And like I said, hopefully people focus on the positive impact and not negative ones. <laughs> okay. We're, you know, we're going to get, uh, we're going to get real deep here. If you're stranded alone on an Island for one year, you can take three albums with you. You've got to listen to these three albums only. Do you have one to three albums that would be, uh, critical for you to have there that would keep you company alone? Uh, let's see. I, um, you know, I, I would take, uh, Garth Brooks greatest hits. Um, big Garth Brooks fan. Um, I would okay. take a, uh, I would take a Hootie and the Blowfish slash Darius Rucker 
collection mix <laughs> if I could, because I, I like Hootie and Blowfish <laughs> and Darius Rucker. I like both. Even that's a solo career. And uh, there's several albums he has that I love. And then, um, and then I love Throwing Copper by Live, which is a whole different genre, kind of hard rock alternative back from my college days. Um, and uh, Throwing Copper was, uh, or Mental Jewelry was probably, that's probably one. I take an album called Mental Jewelry. It was one of their first uh, CDs that they ever released. And um, I, it's, it's ingrained in my brain. So those, those are three different types of music that would probably uh, keep me going for <laughs> one year. <laughs> You know, I, I was I was going to say that's not a bad mix. You you could put it on shuffle. There you go. I mean, I mean if you could find shuffle, a CD player play. on this island, I guess <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Last question: yes. uh, If you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would it be? You know, it'd be Abraham Lincoln. It would be. I have a portrait of Abraham Lincoln in my home, and um, I, you know, he's from Indiana, and uh, I would just, you know, I mean, obviously he's a historical figure that everyone knows and understands, but, uh, he's someone, and there's a few others I would love to have dinner with as well, but he's someone that comes to mind and, um, yeah, I would definitely enjoy uh, a dinner with him. That's awesome. Well, I think a lot of people would, uh, agree with him being a pretty, uh, important character in history and probably a very fascinating person who overcame a lot of obstacles. Um, you know, we really definitely appreciate you talking with us, spending some time educating everyone about service companion animals, everything like that. Um, so, you know, we, again, want to thank you for that. How can the audience... Thank you for that. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> How can the audience get a hold of you or view your information or, you know, connect with Pet Screening if they want to become a client? Yeah, so it's easy. I mean, PetScreening.com, I mean, that's our website. And um, uh, someone can shoot me an email, john, J-O-H-N, at PetScreening.com. Uh, either way, reach, we have a great team. And, um, we hear, we hear this a lot. We hear it's a no brainer to use pet screening and, um, and we agree. And I think our track record proves it. Um, and, uh, for those that slow down in their busy lives to just, um, learn about it, it's easy to deploy. Uh, it'll be the best thing they ever did because they're gonna get a lot of time back. They're going to save uh, a lot of headaches and, uh, and really help with some liability mitigation and make some extra money along the way with the FIDO score. So all those things add up to a recipe of success. And uh, our biggest challenge is just spreading the good word. So appreciate the, uh, the podcast here and uh, let people know that we're out there doing our thing. So thanks again for having me. That was John Bradford with PetScreening.com. And that wraps up another episode of Invest in the West. I'm Nick Cook, along with Matt Williams. Be sure to subscribe and stay tuned for new episodes.